Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. As we're going to finish up chapter 4 today, and I want to read this passage of Scripture together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. It says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, talking about Sarah. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. With the son of the free woman. Verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would come alive to us this morning. Speak to us in, in just miraculous ways. Father, I pray we would not belittle this experience. God, I pray we would not be cavalier or apathetic to this time that we have in your word. But God, we would see that it is living, it is active, as it reads us, pierces through to our deepest soul. God, I pray we would be honest and open and allow it to reveal to us what it is you have for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Paul continues to write here, church, fighting for the freedom of his people in Christ. And, and I love this section. You know, this section, as we finish up chapter 4, has some very strong language. And especially in our day and age, we kind of flinch at some of the language that we might see in it. But it's very important for us to understand what Paul is doing here. That Paul is taking, I love this, Paul is taking Scripture, Scripture that these people would have known, Scripture that these people would have been very familiar with in the Torah, or what was the Hebrew Bible, the first five books of the Bible that they would have had in this time that the religious leaders, that the Jewish people, that the, the Judaizers and the Jewish Christians, that all these people would have had and they would have had access to and been able to have heard these stories and these things that Paul is referencing here. You know, and what I think just as we're getting into it, I hope that we can see as Paul is referencing something, referencing something that happened thousands of years before him, that we would know that there is no time that Scripture isn't relevant to us. That there is no time in our life that Scripture isn't vital to our understanding and continued growth in our walk with Jesus. Scripture never, 
ever comes to a point where it's not applicable. And I love how even for Paul, as he's trying to kind of wrap up some themes that we've been talking about over the last several weeks and over the course of the study, as he's really bringing to home this idea of grace and the difference and the uh, contrast between the gospel of grace and the gospel of works, and that he's utilizing this story that they would have been so familiar with to reveal to them the truth of the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus. And he's showing us that scripture is never irrelevant. And specifically here for us, as we, as we may be coming from different backgrounds or different experiences or wrestling with this idea of earning our salvation or keeping our salvation and, and, and place at God's table and resting or the other side, resting in the work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. You know, Christian denominations differ in how we approach that. And so many of us may come from spaces where whether it's gaining salvation or keeping salvation are different than how that we as the Church of Cross Point may present it. You know, and so what Paul is trying to communicate here is, is what it truly means to be a child of God by grace through faith in Jesus. And he's using this illustration, this scriptural evidence to reveal to them what he's talking about. And so what story is he referencing? Well, in, your Bible, in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, it would begin in, in Genesis chapter 15, I believe, and it continues on through 16 and 17 and kind of picks back up again in, in chapter 20 where we see this story play out where God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, he says, listen, I know you're old and I know your wife is old and you're past your childbearing age, uh, but you will bear a son and your offspring will, have, will, will be as numerous as the stars like God just pours these promises on Abraham because of his faith he has faith in God he believes in the work of the God of the Bible and so you know before he even had scripture to depend on he knew that there was a God and the Bible says that God counted that to him as righteousness and because of that God begins to bring promises before Abraham and tell him this is what is going to happen for you and so within that context, uh, Abraham goes and tells his wife. Well, then in the, in the midst of that, they come to this collective agreement that God needs help, that God needs help. And so then uh, Sarah tells him to have uh, her, uh, her, you know, the Bible here, the ESV says slave, but some translations say bondservant, which is probably a better illustration because when we think of slave, we think about it in an oppressive sense. But in the Bible, when it talks about slave, it's talking about more of someone paying off a debt or, or, or paying someone back for something that they've done for them, more of a willingness or a work relationship. And so he tells, uh, Sarah tells Abraham that you will have a child with Hagar, my bondservant, my maidservant. And so they do, and then they immediately regret it. And so there's all these things that are going on in the context of this struggle with the promise of God. And so if I had to, if I had to subtitle this morning, it would be this, that as we're navigating grace, as we're navigating our relationship to God, how we get to God, how we stay with God, that Paul is communicating this to us this morning, that freedom is found in his promises. That freedom is found in his promises. And this is where Abraham is struggling, and this is where the people of the region of Galatia are struggling, and this is where we struggle today. And not only how we get to God, but how we stay in the family of God. Many of you this morning may be coming here believing there is a way that you can remove yourself from God's hand, that you can remove yourself from the family of God, denounce yourself as a child of God, or maybe some of us come in here this morning, you believe that there are certain requirements or things you must do to get into that place at a seat at God's table. 
But I believe one of the main things, and as I looked at my notes, I had one note, one point that was very lopsided from the other, but I believe it's because for me personally, it's one of the ones I struggled with navigating the most just in my religious life, trying to grab a hold of and understand. But I believe the first point this morning is this, what Paul is trying to tell us, that his promise is separate from human effort. That his promise of what he will do and accomplish is separate from human effort. Because remember, we are talking about, Paul is using the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children that were born in the midst of this struggle to communicate an idea of salvation and perseverance and staying in the family of God. And so I believe the first thing he's telling us is that his promise is separate from human effort. In verse 21, Paul says this, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. So when he says this to be under the law, he's communicating this idea of relying on the law for your standing with God. And he says to desire, you know, so it's almost this idea if you're not grasping a hold of the the, uh, gospel at which I've given to you, which is what Paul has been constantly trying to combat, the difference between his message of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ and the message of the other religious leaders, the gospel of, of Jesus plus adding these things to it to get to God. So he tells him, he says, listen, if you're not embracing or understanding or seeking after the message that I have for you, you're actively desiring to be under the law. When he says under the law, he's communicating this idea of relying on the law to get you to God. You know, it's, it's, it's us, you know, or these people, he's telling them, he says, listen, you are desiring to be under the law. And in the midst of being under the law, you are depending on the law to not only make you right, before God, but to keep you right before God. And what he's communicating here, and what we'll continue to see, is that this is not freedom. This is not the freedom that Jesus has intended for us. You know, law-relying individuals have lots of insecurity. Law-relying individuals have lots of insecurity because we can never truly be assured that, they, that we are living in God acceptance. You know, and I've, I've lived this life. I've lived the life of, of law relying, where we believe that if we can just accomplish these tasks, <clears throat> do these things, that we will be made right before a holy God. You know, and for us, let me get some water, or I'll be coughing the whole time. Sorry, my cup is giant. So, <clears throat> if we are relying on the law, then there is no security, there's no confidence that we can take from that. And like I said, I've, I've lived that life. You know, we, we give, it's very easy and it's very common for us to give the list of do's and don'ts, the things that we need to do to get into God's graces and to find ourselves at this place where we not only are accepted, but feel accepted by God. You know, and not that everything we do is about our feelings, but there is something about a confidence at which we navigate in our life by knowing that I am God's and he has me and he is for me and he is with me. That is a confidence that a Christian, that a believer should never live without. But too often, and like the people of Galatia, because these religious leaders have come in and they're beginning to teach a different message, that the people of Galatia do not have this confidence. They are not navigating in this truth. And so then in Galatians 4.23, Paul says, he says, the slave or the bondservant 
that was born according to the flesh, and that the free was born through the promise. Paul begins to show the difference in how Abraham's experience exemplifies the nature of salvation by grace through faith. When he says, according to the flesh and the the promise, he's talking about two covenants. He's talking about two different experiences, two different modes at which we get to God. And he says, the first one, that the slave was born according to the flesh. And according to the flesh is this idea of, of, of what we do, what we do as people. You know, anytime the Bible talks about the flesh, it's speaking about it in, in, uh, in, in view, with us in view, with our, our actions, with our works, with our, uh, the way at which we navigate and do life. And so he says here that the slave was born according to the flesh. You know, and this is slavery. This is the legal covenant of bondage. You know, and a covenant is a contract that sets the rules of a relationship. So the covenants that he's speaking of, and we see him have this covenant language down in verse 24, where he says these women are two covenants. So he says these covenants are a a relationship, a contract between two people. And those two people, those two entities are us and a holy God. And so he says these two women represent two different covenants being Sarah Abraham's wife and Hagar the the maidservant or the bondservant of the slave Romans 9 8 Paul writes this he says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring some other translations would say instead of according to the flesh they would say the ordinary way the ordinary way why because whenever Sarah and Abraham decided that Abraham would have a child with Hagar, who was of childbearing age, who had that capabilities, for, for Abraham and Hagar to have a child, it was the ordinary way, right? It, it required no faith. It required no uh, miraculous work. Hagar was physically able, able, and Abraham decided to get a son, even though God had told him, through Sarah, through your barren wife, through the wife that cannot have kids, I will give you a child. And then they decided to step out on their own and, and, and have a child with the bondservant. Abraham decided to get a son by human attainment or according to the flesh, relying on his own capabilities, the ordinary way, pushing away the miraculous, not having confidence in God in that moment, and stepping out and doing their own way. He was acting in faith, but the faith he had was in himself as his own savior. The faith he had in this moment was in himself as Abraham, in his own in himself to be his own savior to accomplish his goal. And according to the flesh, because it was done by Abraham stepping out and putting his faith in himself rather than God. Because Sarah was unable to have children. She was physically incapable on her own. But God had said, this is what I'll do. So perspectively, that seems impossible. Perspectively, we could, they could say, and they did say, you know, Sarah would even say that God is keeping me from having a kid. She even looked at it as a punishment. Because of her, the lack of faith in the promises of God. And so through her physically incapable uh, means of having a child, and also Abraham being of, of old age, Abraham attempts to help God. And God even says in Genesis 17, he even says, I will bless her. 
And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. You know, then he says later on, uh, but, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You know, so God is pouring these promises out. He says, I will do this work according to my effort, according to my work, and you will be the vessel. You know, culturally, Sarah's value and her worth was tied to her ability to have children. You know, and culturally for us, it's told to us that anything we have and anything we do is because not only that we've worked hard for it, which you know, and, and is not a bad thing, but also is that we're good enough for it. You know, that our abilities meet the requirements to attain that. You know, which in a lot of ways in the world system makes sense, right? To work a certain job, you need to have a certain degree, which requires work, which requires performance within the midst of all those things. It makes sense, right? In, your, in, in all our jobs, if, if you work hard and you, you exceed expectations, then you get raises. If you just meet the, the requirements, then you get, you get paid for it. If you don't, then you don't. You get let go. So there's, our world is built on a system that is performance-based. And so for ourselves, when we look at salvation, when we look at the relationship between us and a holy God who is perfect, we want to integrate that system into that relationship. But Paul is trying to communicate what God is using the story of of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar to show is that the work of God in saving of his people and keeping of his people, his promises are separate from human effort. But the driving force for many of us is because culturally our desire, what we've been, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever it might be, that, that we're expected that, that what we do will drive us. You know, that what we do will accomplish us. Yeah, that we want it to be based on us. We want it to be what we do. We want it to be how much we've done and how good we've been and how well we've, we've done it. You know, and for a lot of us, similar to Sarah and Abraham's situation, is that it drives us to extreme measures. It drives us to extreme measures of seeking that immediate satisfaction, seeking that immediate approval, seeking that immediate, that, 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 that feeling of, of being good and feeling good. It pushes us to measures like it did with Sarah and Abraham where they would have a child outside of their marriage with someone else. And even in the Bible, immediately, Sarah regretted it. Sarah regretted it, and it caused contempt between her and Abraham. Because they realized how wrong it was. They realized how stepping out and trying to accomplish this task on their own, pushing against and, and kind of stiff-arming the promises of God was not going to gain them the satisfaction that they believed they wanted, that they believed they needed. You know, because even after this, the tribe of Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar, born of Abraham and Hagar, the tribe of Ishmael and then Isaac, Sarah's son, will clash. You know, there's this ripple effect of sin even afterwards. Anytime we step out from under the promise of God that God has given us in our impatience or in our own desire to do it by our own efforts or our own work, we always are led into sinful situations. And then those sinful situations compound and then they ripple throughout, uh, throughout our, our, the, the, the time ahead of us and affect us. Because, man, 
Paul and all throughout the Bible, it is so clear that our best attempts at righteousness are polluted garments or filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. That there is no good that is good enough to get us to God. That there is no good that is good enough to keep us with God. You know, and then in Sarah, and, and it is it God is understand they understand this truth and they begin to kind of preach this into their family in Genesis 18:14 that is there anything too hard for the Lord? And God tells them at the appointed time I will return to you and about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Listen. Specifically, he is saying this in reference to salvation. You know, and there's a lot of times that we want signs for things that are happening, to have confidence, and sometimes the promise itself is the confidence to carry us. Because he tells him, God tells him, listen, it is coming. It is coming. You will see the fruit of my promise eventually if you will just continue to seek after me. But if you continue to step out on your own, you will continue to fall into more sin. You will continue to fall into more struggle. You will continue to fall into more situations that are in opposition to my will and to my promises. And I love how Paul, he references again scripture that they would have been familiar with. In verse 20, uh, down in verse 27, it says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, for the children of the desolate one will be more. You know, Paul is saying this because he, what he wants us to know as people, as human beings who are faulty and frail and broken, and as he's communicated to these people, you know, the barren one, like we said, in this culture, a woman who was barren had no worth, had no value. Most husbands would, would leave them behind and move on to someone else if that's the case. This is God taking what is hopeless, what is unable, what is imperfect, what is worthless, and what is aimless, and redeeming it, and making it something new, and making it something valuable, making it something with purpose, and making it something that is usable, making it something that is worth being excited about, making it something that, is, that will flourish, that will be fruitful. When we put our faith in Jesus and God begins to do that work in our life, that is what God begins to do with us, not based on the work or the accomplishments of ourselves, but separate from human effort. Because we, he, when in, in Isaiah, when he's saying this, the barren one is Jerusalem. The barren one is the Hebrew, the Jewish people that are, that are in exile at this time. They've, they've been exiled from their land. And so Isaiah is prophesying this from God, and he's telling them. He's telling them, listen, you are barren right now. You have no fruit. You are aimless. You are worthless. But God is going to do more with you than all the ones. And he says here in the, the illustration to the ones who have husbands, he says, uh, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has husbands. He says, you will be more than those 
at which it makes sense. It makes sense that they would have children. It would make sense that they would be fruitful. It would make sense, but God doesn't work in the ordinary. God works in the extraordinary. God works in the spaces where it doesn't make sense. It doesn't go along with the world system. It's not profit and loss. It's not based on performance. He said it's separate from human effort, and it's a work that God has done and that we accept through embracing the dying and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And we know the story in Genesis that God gives everything that he promised. And we are still today living in the promise that God gave to Abraham. Every single one of us today, if you put your faith in Jesus, we are spiritual children of Abraham. Of, of, of the nation that was born from him. You know, what's so interesting about Isaiah 54, where Paul quotes this to the people, is that it was written 1,200 years after Abraham's time and 600 years before Paul. Isn't that just amazing? 1,200 years after Abraham's time and 600 years before Paul, that we see God's truths just continuing to shine forth, to continue to affect and to reveal truth. You know, in, in this talking about Israel, they were weak. They were failures. They were helpless. They were, in a sense, barren. But what does he say in that verse? He says, rejoice, O barren one. He says, cry aloud, break forth. He says that you will be more. That you will be more. You know, in, in, in relating this to salvation, you know, when we talk about Sarah being the, the mother of promise and Hagar being the mother of, of bondage and according to the flesh and of fleshly or man, man uh, uh, capabilities, man's capabilities, man's work. If salvation is by works only, if salvation is by works only, then only the fertile can have children. And so what does that mean? That if salvation is by works only, then it's only through Hagar. It's only through that work. It's, it's, it's never, it can never happen through the barren one. It can never happen to the, the one who is unable to have. You know, and, and how does that translate to us in our day, in our time, and as we as the church communicate the message of the gospel, that if salvation is by works, that it's only the morally able who can be saved. That it's only the people from good families that will be saved. It's only the people with good records who can be spiritually fruitful because they've deserved it, right? Because they've performed well enough for it. But if the gospel of grace is true, if the gospel of Sarah, if the gospel of the barren one, if the gospel of the one who did not have the capabilities or the physicalities to accomplish the task, if that gospel is true, then it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your status. Grace is not just for the fertile Hagars, but it's for the barren Sarahs. It's not just for those who by ordinary means can accomplish task. 
God works in the extraordinary. God works in the spaces where it doesn't make sense. God works with the people who don't deserve it. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but that's me today. I don't deserve it, but God works in the midst of that. God works with me. God works for me. And the same he does and can do for you through our faith in Jesus and depending on his work and not our own. Listen, most religion and most philosophy in general say that good that God and salvation are only for those who are good, only for those who have followed the rules, only for those who don't make mistakes, only for those who keep according to the law, according to the flesh. Listen, to religious people, specifically he's talking about these religious uh, Judaizers or these legalists. Listen, religious people, whether they realize it or not, rejecting Jesus as Savior because their religious works and efforts merit God's favor. Their Savior is their achievements. And it's so easy for us to fall into that, where our Savior can be our achievements and that the more we do, the closer we feel to God, when in reality we are living according to the flesh, according and relying on the law. John Newton said this. I love this quote. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what we used to be as children of God is we used to be barren. We used to be lost. We used to be hopeless. We used to be without confidence. We used to be without power. But through Jesus and through the promises of God, just like he gave Sarah the power to conceive, he gives us the power of salvation through the gospel. And the last thing this morning as we wrap up is that his promise continues despite our failure. In Galatians 31, uh, 4.31, we are not children of the slave but of the free. Our freedom is for something. Our freedom is for movement. Our freedom is for action. Our freedom is for progress, not to be bound up and not to be confined by fear or complacency. God would use Abraham and Sarah despite their, fail, their faith failure here in this moment. They stepped out and did their own thing, but you know what? God redeemed them. God continued to use them. And through their lineage, Jesus would be born. Even Abraham's lack of momentary faith did not remove him from the promises of God made to him through him. That is salvation by grace through faith. So the first part was how God receives us, and this last thing is how God keeps us. Even though Abraham failed at the first promise that God gave to him, God continued to stay with him. God continued to bless him. God continued to lead God and direct him. And Abraham continued to follow. Can we live in that confidence? Can we live in that confidence of Abraham, not only understanding that God receives us separate from our effort, but God keeps us despite our failure? And this happens by putting our trust in something beyond us to accomplish something despite us. Putting our faith in something beyond us for our saving, for our rescuing, to accomplish something despite us, despite our failure, despite our weakness, despite our inabilities, because we're barren, 
Just as Sarah was barren to conceive, we are barren to rescue ourselves, to conceive goodness from ourselves, to conceive righteousness and holiness from ourselves, and that only comes from God, and God receives us through our faith in Jesus. When we trust in that and we stop trying to be good enough to be a child of God, we stop trying to be good enough to find a seat at God's table and begin to rest in that. And does that mean that we give up pushing? Does that mean we give up pursuing righteousness and holiness? Absolutely not. That we would just understand that Paul wanted them to see God's saving work is of the miraculous. Miraculous, and that when we can trust in that, when we can begin to step into that, we will not only live in it for ourselves, but we're going to lead people to it. You know, the problem is in the midst of Christians and in the midst of our church and what they lost sight of is that we've stopped being impressed by the miraculous work of God. We've stopped being impressed by the miraculous work of God because we began to be so inwardly and individualistic and humanistically focused that we have, any, we have the audacity to believe that we could at any point do enough good to be holy before a holy God. And through that, we've stopped being impressed by it. We stopped being overcome by the sheer volume of grace that's been poured over us. We've stopped recognizing that we fail. We've stopped recognizing that we're weak. And we've stopped being overcome by the beautiful, amazing grace of God poured out over his people. And so with that, we've stopped pointing people to it. We've stopped pointing our children to it because we don't think it's that valuable. We've stopped pointing our friends and family to it because we don't think it's that valuable. We don't see the beauty of the message of grace because we've stopped seeing grace. We've stopped seeing it for what it is. We've stopped seeing the truth of his promises that God said, you are barren, you are unable, you are incapable, but despite that, I'm still going to offer you a promise. I'm still going to do something for you. And it's when we begin to receive that and accept that and believe that, that we become so overwhelmed by the true grace of God that we can't help but say to our kids, there is a grace that for me as a dad that I can look at my children, I can say, you know what, your daddy is not perfect and your daddy fails on so many levels, but I serve a God that has poured grace over me, that has poured promise over me, that has poured good and value and worth and direction and purpose over me. And that's the same thing he has for you. And I pray that we would never be a people that stop seeing and being impressed by and just overcome by the grace of God in our lives. Separate from the work of man, even in spite of our opposition and our missteps of faith, that God takes what is barren and desolate and he sees it flourish, alive, and producing, which is what he did with Sarah. And it is because of that work that Abraham continued to walk and strive towards God's promises, even in his failure of faith. And because we are not children of the slave, but of the free, let us live. Let us live in that grace. Let us live pursuing goodness. Let us live for goodness, not for goodness' sake, but because of the goodness that's been done for our sake. That we would not look at grace as an opportunity to sin or to push back against God, but we would look at grace as an opportunity to live. John Piper said this, and then I'll be done. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Grace is power, not just pardon. The grace of God is power unto salvation for us to live to lead our families, 
to lead our friends and point them to this miraculous grace. The book of Galatians is about to take a hard shift into some more practical kind of day-to-day living, but I love how we wrap up this chapter. Paul wants us to see that the grace of God is visualized in him taking what is barren and incapable and unable. Where God says, where Paul would write in Romans that none are righteous, no, not one, that no one does good, that no one seeks after God. The barren one, God makes a promise that I will do something in the midst of that. That even in our inabilities to seek him, to love him, and to pursue him perfectly, he's created a way for us, and that's in Jesus. That's through our faith in him. That's through trusting in him and what he's done for us on the cross and knowing and believing that there is no way that I could have ever accomplished what Jesus did. And because of what he's did, there is grace for me today and for every day, not only to bring me to the table, but to keep me at the table despite my faith failures. Church, let's bow our heads this morning and just take a moment. As we consider the promises of salvation that God has given to each and every one of us, that he's offered to us through Jesus, and maybe this morning we're believers, we've accepted and received that faith. I pray that we would truly consider, are we living in that grace? Are we impressed? Are we just in awe of that grace? And it is it driving us to live, not living to earn, but living because we're free. We're free from the shackles of sin and its effects. We're free from the shackles of the law and the do's and the don'ts. We're free from the requirements of religious ceremonies. We're free of the requirements to be good enough or to be righteous enough or holy enough. And because we're free, would we live? Would we truly live in that freedom? That we would pray and be honest with ourselves Are we living according to the flesh, living according to our abilities, living in the the shame and the insecurities of are we good enough, have we done well enough? But begin to truly walk and live and embrace the grace of God in our lives. Maybe we haven't truly put ourselves, our faith in Jesus, truly believed on him for salvation. I pray this morning that we could see in our most desolate, hopeless, aimless, directionless times, our most empty times, that if we'll relinquish our efforts, that we will be able to embrace the righteousness of Jesus and be made right before a holy God, be saved from our sin and the effects of our sin only through Jesus. I pray we would be honest with ourselves this morning and begin to live in that light. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. God, I pray we would see grace for what it truly is. God, I pray that we would see what it is that you've done. God, you take what is barren, you take what is empty, you take what is desolate, what is effort, where there is no effort that can be done well enough, there's no capabilities or gifts or achievements that are good enough. God, you step into those spaces and you offer promises separate from human effort. Father God, I just pray this morning that we would trust in you for our salvation. God, that we would trust in you and your grace. God, and in the midst of that grace, God, I pray that we would live. 
God, that we would strive to lead our families towards this grace, that we would strive to lead our families to your word. God, I pray we would strive to, to, to Lord, exemplify this uh, graceful covenant with our marriages. We would strive to, to, to just show this graceful covenant and how we deal with individuals and people and each other. God, we thank you because you're good. God, and it's because you're good that we can be a child of God. It's because of your son Jesus, not because of our work, not because of our effort, but through the sheer grace of God on our behalf. So I pray we would receive that. God, I pray we would live in that in a way that maybe we've never even truly began to live in up to this point, God, but we would begin to evaluate and step into those spaces you have for us. God, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.